For the meek and repentant who encountered Christ, healing and forgiveness was offered. While quick and harsh condemnation might be a part of our society today, it had no place in Christ's mission and ministry. His grace, love, and mercy provide a singular and eternally significant hope for peace as we face the ominous storms before us. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit may teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. Jesus Christ is the master healer because, well, one, he can actually heal us. He healed the blind man, he raised Lazarus from the dead, and he can heal us spiritually through the gift of the atonement. I had a physical ailment for a very long time, um, seven years, and sometimes I was so, my muscles were so tired and weak that I couldn't even stand up and walk. I feel like Jesus Christ is the master healer because he heals each one of us individually and, and perfectly. In the Bible, he doesn't heal people the same way. Sometimes it's just touching his clothing as he walks by. Sometimes he gives his word and somebody's healed. Other times he rubs clay in their eyes. While he didn't like miraculously heal me instantly, through prayer and fasting, we were directed and guided to the doctors that finally found out what was wrong so that I could get the treatment I needed. We don't all need the same things when it comes to healing, but he's able to come to each of us where we are and help us in the way that we need most. Welcome, everybody. My name is Ben Lomu, and I am your host. Our gospel scholar for today is Dr. Dan Belknap. Dr. Belknap received a PhD in Northwest Semitics from the University of Chicago and is a professor of ancient scripture at BYU. Dan, welcome. Thank you. And our special guest today seated next to Dan is Amber Togisala. Amber is a wedding and portrait photographer and the mother of four amazing kids. Amber, we're so happy to have you here today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And we're also joined by our studio audience. Thank you all for being here today. And to each of you at home, thank you for joining us in today's discussion. Please follow along and share your thoughts with us on any of our social media platforms. Today, we've selected two topics to discuss that relate to passages found in Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapters 2 through 4, and Luke chapter 7. These topics and discussions support and build upon the Come Follow Me resource developed and published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The two topics we are going to discuss today are first, Jesus Christ came not to condemn sinners but to heal them, and second, faith in Christ helps calm the storms in my life. After exploring these two topics with our panel and studio audience, well, let our studio audience go and dive deeper into the scriptures with Dan and Amber in footnotes. Okay, Dan, so as we jump into our first topic, Jesus Christ came not to condemn sinners, but to heal them. What sort of background or context can you provide uh, with these chapters as we jump into this first topic? Right. So when you were dealing with this, keep in mind as we look at some of these narratives and these accounts that we're, we're going to talk about, some are in Matthew in our readings, some are in Luke's readings. Not all of them are in the Matthew reading, not all of them are in the Luke, and not all of them are in, in Mark. The principle kind of seems to take an amalgam of a couple of narratives. And one of these narratives is, um, it's the story in Mark when they're in Capernaum and the man's being lowered down in the house. Christ forgives him of his sins. Everyone's like, what are you forgiving him of his sins for? And he says, what do you think is easier for me to do? Forgive them or heal them? 
right? So that's that's mm-hmm. one account. And the second one is is a unique narrative that you only find in Luke. It's the story of Christ as he's invited into the house by a Pharisee. And as they're eating, this woman comes in who's got a bit of a reputation, and she ends up wiping his feet with her hair. And this is going to lead to a discussion as the, as the, as the host, Simon, the Pharisee, looks at and says, why is he letting someone do that? And then when he calls Matthew, Matthew apparently invites him to his house for a feast. And when they're there, there's a bunch of people there, publicans, sinners. And then the question becomes, who's Christ going to be with? And so that's, these are the three separate narratives that seem to be leading to this principle of Christ isn't here to condemn, but to heal. Okay. Well, let's jump into Mark chapter two. And I want to look at some of these verses. And then uh, I want to get some of your thoughts, Amber, as we jump into this first topic of Christ eating with sinners. So if we'll go to Mark chapter two, verse 15. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? Uh, Amber, what are some of your thoughts as we begin this discussion on the example that Christ is setting by choosing to eat with some of these social outcasts that in the scriptures are referred to as sinners? Well, I think it just goes to show that he, he truly sees everyone as equals. He loves everyone unconditionally. He knows the desires of all of our hearts. And I think it's, you know, I think it's just beautiful to see that he's embracing these people and his unconditional love that he has for every one of us. Elder Brenlin has a beautiful quote talking about, you know, some of the behaviors of Christ and dealing with some of these sinners and publicans. He said, Jesus Christ freely associated with sinners, treating them honorably and with respect. And I think that's something that can be lost is it's one thing to to be in association. It's another thing to treat them honorably and with respect. He taught the joy of keeping God's commandments and sought to lift rather than condemn those who struggled. He did denounce those who faulted him for ministering to people they deemed unworthy. To be Christ-like, a person manifests compassion for others, especially for those who are less fortunate. They are gracious, kind, and honorable. These individuals treat everyone with love and understanding, regardless of characteristics such as race, gender, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, and tribal, clan, or national differences. These are superseded by Christ-like love. And I I love this, this message that we continue today of how we respond and how we react to others because ultimately Christ's mission, as is our first topic, was to heal. You know, those that are sick are the ones who need the physician, whether it's spiritual or physical. And, and Amber, I would love to get your thoughts. What have you learned through some of your experiences about the healing, both physical and spiritual, that Christ brings? In February of 2022, my 18-year-old son was involved in a ski accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down. He was preparing for graduation from high school. He had a full ride golf scholarship to go play college golf. And, and so needless to say, we needed some healing. It was really hard, but it was also really beautiful. As a family, we, we never once asked the question, why Max or why our family? It was from the very beginning, what can we learn from this trial and how are we gonna be strengthened? 
And, and I think once we were able to do that and truly turn this trial over to the Lord, we were able to apply the atonement every day in our lives. And it's a very sacred, beautiful thing to experience the atonement every day in your life. And with that, you instantly feel peace and comfort and you feel, you know, a healing process come over you. Amber, was there a moment throughout this process that you were hopeful that there could be a full physical recovery from, from what happened to your son? Oh, and absolutely. Can you talk us through a little bit about that? And, and what was that process like as, and it, this is pretty new and pretty fresh. Right. He's still in this process of recovery. Right. Yeah. Well, I remember being in the surgical waiting room while they were performing the surgery and begging and pleading with the Lord to make my boy whole. And I had this impression come over me that as much as I love him, he loves him more. And I right then knew that everything was going to be okay. I had this calmness come over me that I knew that no matter if he were ever to walk again, Max was going to be okay. Not that it would be easy, you know, he still has a lot of hard days, and but he, he smiles and he sees the good in everything. And we've been completely blessed to be able to be a part of it and witness it. It's been a, the most wonderful, miserable thing we've ever gone through is the best way to describe it. What kind of spiritual healing uh, have you seen through this experience? Max was able to see the big picture and that Max knew that he was not alone. He was mentally strong and he had just received his patriarchal blessing not long before his accident. And so he was developing his own personal relationship with Heavenly Father. It was just amazing to see him mentally be able to accept this. And that was a miracle in itself because, you know, I was so, I would pray daily to be guided what to tell my son and how to help him understand that this is God's will. And he accepted it from day one and he, he hasn't quit smiling. I would write little comments or make posts on social media and I always made sure I sent a picture, I posted a picture every day of him smiling because it's what we were witnessing in the rehab facility. He smiled every single day. And I would get comments from people that said, every time I see your son smiling, I feel the Savior's love. Wow. And so it was, it was a very spiritual thing that we, we knew that we needed to share with everyone around us and we were truly blessed. You know, it's, it's an inspiration to, to hear these experiences as tragic as, as, as they can be, to see that example, it can be very inspiring for, for so many uh, to witness that. I would love to hear from the audience, how have you felt the healing power that Christ offers? Michael. One of the things that's come up in a, a couple of the, the thoughts that have been shared already uh, is the concept of labels. Right. It came up in that Elder Redmond quote. It's come up in a couple of the things that, that panelists have said. You know, when we approach people as, the, as a category that our brains put them in, right? You are whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our brains make assumptions. We make assumptions about who you are, right? You are a sinner. You yeah. are a sinner. That's exactly what I was thinking, right? And, and Christ's example is that he didn't do that. He didn't make assumptions about publicans, about people that he met in the street. He focused on who you are. Uh, and that's a, a, that's a very healing example to get rid of the assumptions that we might make as, as people. I love the example that you shared of your son. And what occurred to me is if I see Max as disabled, I don't see Max, right? To 
remove any assumptions that I might have about Max. I need to see Max first and get to know him and his smile and who he is and it, it, if he has the uses of his legs or not. That's not Max. Max is Max. And, and so when, when I think about healing, that's one of the things I think about Christ is, is setting an example and helping me remove uh, assumptions that I make, might make about other people before I get to know them. You know, and one of the beautiful things that Michael is doing is showing us the, how Christ views us all as sons and daughters of God and what that can do for the way that we treat others and how we, we interact with others, and which is why you can see how loving he was to those that were labeled as, as sinners or as publicans or, or dot, 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 any other way that he can, that we as societies, these labels we put on people and it's, it can be difficult sometimes to overcome some of those societal labels. We had a question coming from one of our, our viewers that really sparks an interesting conversation. Now I'd love to get some of your thoughts on it. Hi, my name is Jessica Poe. I'm from Colleen, Texas. And my question today is, how do you find healing when you find yourself burdened with sinner's guilt? I don't know if you've heard of this concept of sinner's guilt before, but it's one thing for the Savior to forgive us and to heal us of a burden or a sin. But what happens when you don't allow yourself to be forgiven because you feel guilty for some of the things that you've done? Enos has exactly that same question, right? God says, I've forgiven you your sins. And he's like, how exactly? And, and, and God gives his answer. And what Enos ends up saying is something like, and I knew God couldn't lie. Yeah. Right? I knew God couldn't lie. That I know. And by virtue of that, that when God says your sins are forgiven you, well, God can't lie. And that I know. Right? And so, so when I look at sometimes of this forgiveness, I think it's not just that you need to hear that Christ forgave you. You actually have to believe that Christ doesn't lie. Right. And God deals in truth. He just deals with this so that when God speaks, you can know I'm not lying. That's where our trust lies in. Your trust and your faith in Christ and God the Father rest in the fact that you inherently know he doesn't lie. Well, thank you both for, for sharing your thoughts on our first discussion about healing that comes from Christ. And for the audience, thank you as well for participating in this first portion of the show. And for you at home, what witnesses of healing have you experienced in your life? Share with us on Facebook and Instagram. I think the best way to increase faith in Christ is just like putting it into practice. There are many ways to practice many things, right? Uh, one of the ways we increase faith in Jesus Christ is talking about Him and sharing what He means to us. I increase my faith by reading the scriptures and praying daily and going to church in the temple. We might attend church. Uh, we might go be by ourselves in the middle of the woods and meditate. Uh, Whatever those are, there are, they're all a way of practice. The one way that we don't increase our faith about Jesus Christ is by not trying. The way that I build my faith is by looking at past experiences I've had where Heavenly Father has come through for me. And so when I am going through a hard experience now, I can look back and see that He can do the same thing for me today. The second topic we're gonna to discuss today is faith in Christ helps calm the storms in my life. 
Dan, what context do we need to understand about these scriptures as we jump into this next topic? This narrative arises out of an account that shows up in, in the three gospel harmonies. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's got the story of there on the Sea of Galilee. This is all dealing with Christ's Galilean ministry. He's been up there. He's been visiting people. He goes back to Capernaum all the time. This, is, this seems to be Jesus' go-to kind of refuge. Mm-hmm. So they're on the lake. And when that wind picks up, it gets really threatening, particularly in the boats. They're probably smaller. And so when they're on there, the boat rocks back and forth. The water seems to be coming up over the edge of the boat, leading to the threat of capsizing. And that's when the disciples come to Christ. So, so you've got Mark's telling of it and you've got Matthew's telling of it in our reading for this week. So which, which account should we go to first? Let's go with Mark's because it seems to be a little bit bigger. We're going to Mark chapter 4. Do you want to start reading for us, Amber, in verse yeah. 35? Yeah. And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude... They took him even as he was in the ship, and there was also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Okay, can we pause there for a second? I'm I'm really intrigued by this part where... Their reaction, their reaction to this big ship. And apparently, according to the, the account in Mark, he's, he's asleep on a pillow. What do we learn about the apostles from, from their initial reaction to this storm? So if, if I'm reading this right, and it's saying the water's come up over the boat and it's full, there's two things. Christ seems to be sleeping in water. Right. So that didn't wake him. And two, the boat's about to capsize, and that's utterly terrifying. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. At least it is for me. And yeah. to, So to see to someone who's just like absolutely passed out <laughs> with water sloshing around the bottom. Like, how is this not affecting you the same way? What's striking is they're trying to figure out why he isn't having a normal human reaction, right? right. Mm-hmm. If it were any of us in that boat, what would our reaction be? Full panic mode. You bet, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. You'd at least wake yeah. up. You'd at least wake up. <laughs> so there's a part of this that's setting up, and I think an important part of the narrative, which as we'll, as we'll get to, mm-hmm. is this is one of these glimpses into Christ's divine nature. The Mm -hmm. things that concern us as humans on this mortal end are not his concern. It's so easy, I think, in light of Christ's compassion and empathy and the way he interacts with other human beings to treat him like another human being. And they do. And and he has emotions and he shows them in the text. And so it's really easy to treat him like any other human out there. But he isn't like any other human out there. And I think sometimes they forget that divine nature. And so this is a place where Christ's divine nature gets revealed more than his mortal nature. They even asked that question at the end of verse 41, like, who is this? Who are you? What manner of man is this after they see the miracle? Uh, Amber, do you mind? uh, Go ahead and we'll finish this account and then we'll talk about a little more. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Their fear clearly shows that they really are still trying to figure out, they they don't understand quite who he is yet, right? And it's evidenced in the way that they express that fear, not realizing what he is capable of doing. 
he has not done anything like this. Healing is one thing. Mm -hmm. They've got plenty of stories of, even contemporary stories of individuals who are being healed through the manner of power Mm -hmm. of God. This is... Now he's controlling the elements. Yeah, this is a power that is really unparalleled in their experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is, this is on a different scale. And in this case, Christ just stands up and just tells the waters, be still, peace. It's not God says this or God, please still these waters, which is what you would think if Christ was just a conduit. Oh, no, no, no. This is, this is Christ doing something by his own authority. And it represents the divine authority that he has. And you don't always see it in the Gospels, but every now and then there's these glimpses. These glimpses that you just realize, I'm not talking to Joseph's son. I'm talking to God. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. As we look at this experience, I I love how the, the reaction of the apostles, even though they're still trying to figure it out, they turn to Christ and ask for his help. Uh, which is a principle that I think we can all benefit from understanding. So I would love to hear from our audience on when have you in a moment of fear turned to Jesus Christ for help? Lori. It's, uh, it wasn't really a moment of despair. It was years of despair and tumultuousness in my okay. life. Um, I, my husband, right after we bought our first home, he lost his job. Our car broke down. The only job he could get was below poverty level. We had to go get our food from a food bank. I then got a debilitating illness that took five years to diagnose and then start getting treatment to where I could even do basic normal things because there were days I couldn't stand up, I couldn't walk, and my eldest kid was in first grade and I could barely move some days. And so all this was going on And there were just days where I would be on the floor crying my eyes out, asking Heavenly Father to just give me the strength to get through one more day. And I think the fact that He was there and I had someone that I knew was there and could help me get through it was the only reason I was able to get through it, to not despair, to not give in to hopelessness, because I knew he was there and he had a plan and there was a reason for all of it. And I think just knowing there was a purpose to what I was going through helped me get through it. Lori, what is the role of the Holy Ghost in helping you keep that connection with Christ? It allows us to feel of his spirit. So it enables him to comfort us and to strengthen us spiritually, and sometimes even strengthen us physically Mm -hmm. so that we can bear our burdens and our trials. And I feel like that's what he did for me when I was going through all of this. You know, and this is something that, um, if we're not careful, can get lost in the narrative, is the apostles, they had Christ with them in this moment. And he told them, he promised them that, I'm going to leave someday, and I'm going to send a comforter to be with you. And then he does. I think it's important to always remember that the Holy Ghost, the role of the Holy Ghost in helping us draw that connection to Christ since we cannot have him here in the flesh with us. Well, I know that with my son's experience, I I, I think I said it almost every day that I can't imagine going through any of this without the knowledge of the gospel or without the, the feelings of the Holy Ghost with me. From the very beginning, I I knew that this was part of our plan, part of Max's plan, part of our family's plan. 
and we were able to feel the love of our Savior by knowing that knowledge. We were able to feel His love and we were able to feel the peacefulness and the calmness that we needed. I had a lot of people that were like, how on earth are you so calm or how are you handling this the way you are? And I couldn't help but say, well, it, it's from the Holy Ghost. I feel Him with me. I feel His love and His unconditional love and the promptings that He gave me to help my son as far as like telling him the things that he needed to hear. Yeah. In Isaiah chapter 52, there's an interesting what I think model here to this very thing that we're talking about. Christ is in their midst and yet there's still a full-on panic. Mm -hmm. So there's something that's missing here, right? So in Isaiah chapter 52, uh, you have... You have an image. It begins down in verse 11 of, of the idea of leaving Babylon. So it's talking to the saints or to, to the believers. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence. Go ye out from the world, right? Leave the world. Touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, Babylon, Egypt, whatever it is. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. So now you're thinking, okay, it's like the Exodus story. We take the ark, right? We're, we're leaving. We're going mm -hmm. out. So now the imagery is of the camp of Israel. And what he says is, when you leave, you need to be clean. You're going to bear the vessels of the Lord. And then verse 12, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your reward. Now the imagery would then be, so you have this camp, the mm -hmm. camp of Israel. God's in front of it and God's behind it. And he's saying, don't go by haste, don't go by flight. And the, the idea would be as long as you're in the camp, you're safe. Now the camp's always moving. Yeah. And so then you think, okay, what's the problem here? The problem would be getting out of camp. Satan is really good at doing two things to us. He just wants you out of the camp. It doesn't matter. So sin stops our progression. And given enough time, if you don't fix it, the camp moves forward and you're outside of God's protection, mm -hmm. right? You're outside yeah. of the camp. God's in front, God's behind, but you're outside. And you remain there until you repent and you're brought back up into the camp. I think we all recognize that. But there's another one that he suggests here that gets you out of camp just as much. And I'm not so sure it's sin the same way, but you can run ahead of the camp. Mm -hmm. You can run ahead. Maybe thinking you know more. I know more. Mm -hmm. I don't trust the timing. I, I don't trust God. I don't trust. Yeah. I got to run ahead. It's the running ahead of the camp that's the problem, right? There's so much concern right. about the future, so much concern about things that are out of your control, so much what if, what if, what if. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine, but I have to assume that you and your husband mm -hmm. sit at night at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> and get the what ifs. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Which bring fear. Which bring fear. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's just, this is normal. This has now become a, a very human thing. We run ahead of camp. The boat story has this same feature. Mm -hmm. the, the disciple, Christ is right there. You're in the camp. You're fine. <laughs> but they haven't grasped that. And what are they doing? They're running ahead. What happens if, what happens if we can't get the water out? What happens? What are you? What, what, what? <laughs> and Christ's response is, stop. Be still. I'm right here. Be in camp. And to his answer, why don't you have the faith for this? Faith is staying in camp. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where you have to exercise that faith to go. I don't see enough far, far enough ahead. I don't know the timing. I just got to stay in camp. And it'll be fine. Things will work out. The camp is moving. I'll end up where I need to be. I've got to stay in camp. I can't run ahead. President Nelson talks a lot about these catchphrases that teach this principle. Stay on the covenant path. 
hear him. You know, these invitations to, to mend some of the relationships. You don't hear him screaming and saying, run for the hills. <laughs> you know, like it, there's no panic. There's a very calmness and there's such wisdom that comes from, from that, from staying in, in, in the camp. In the camp. So Amber, you've talked about, you know, your experience with your son, Max, and that, that came from somewhere, that faith came from somewhere. Uh, what have you experienced uh, throughout your entire life that has shown you that through our faith in Jesus Christ, we can receive that peace and calm during some of the storms that approach? It's so crucial to live in the moment and live in the present. I think when we drift too far into the future and the unknowns is when our mind starts to, at least for me, mm -hmm. it start, I start to worry as far as things are, are out of my control. And I think by just living in the moment, in the camp. Yeah, living <laughs> in the camp, I, you know, I'm allowing um, the Savior to guide me and direct me and to feel of His love. I, I love the quote by Neil A. Maxwell, perfect faith is not knowledgeable but having, it brings us to understand that the Lord has perfect knowledge. And it gives me comfort knowing that, you know, I may not know everything, I don't understand everything, but I have faith that this is exactly where I'm supposed to be in life, what my son is supposed to go through. I have faith that the Lord knows me and loves me and knows and loves my son more than I even love him. And so by turning our trials over to the Lord, you know, and our hardships, we are able to, I think, get through them. Mm -hmm. So, and Dan, I'll ask you the same the same question. You know, on, on a more personal note, as you have gone through, you know, some of the storms that life often brings, how have you felt that peace and calm that comes from uh, faith in Jesus Christ? One of the great blessings that I've been given is I'd like to think that I reckon. I'm not saying I see it completely but I'm able to grasp that there's a whole lot more than this, yeah. a lot more, which puts everything that's going on now, it doesn't make it easier, but a perspective. Yeah. And, and what I think to me, one of the greatest things the gospel does is brings about a perspective that changes behavior here, yeah. right? So that I can enjoy my life in a way here that I never could have without this incredible cosmic eternal perspective and you can see differently and and that's if you have a conversion of this gospel what people will recognize in any of you and in me is you see things differently i can guarantee you that people are responding to your son going you see things differently yeah and i want to see like that yeah right that's christ that's take heed see it mm -hmm. be quiet and don't worry about it, I got the rest. Sister Lisa Harkness has a quote talking about uh, the need to be intentional in our efforts to see uh, with faith. She says, we can intentionally make efforts to build and increase our faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith increases as we choose to believe rather than doubt, forgive rather than judge, repent rather than rebel. We have faith in his redeeming power and hope in his great and precious promises. We have every reason to rejoice for our Lord and Savior is keenly aware of our troubles, cares, and sorrows. As Jesus was with his disciples of old, he is in our boat. 
Thank you both so very much for sharing with uh, your thoughts and experiences on our second topic. And for the audience, you've been wonderful. Thanks for being here and joining us today and for sharing with us as well. And for those at home, we still have much to cover in footnotes. Stay with us. I really like the discussion this afternoon. I love the story of the apostles going across the water with Christ and facing the storms and the wind and that fear that they must have felt in that moment. I think about what they were going to on the other side, and it was a man who was possessed and struggling and having a hard time of his own. And Christ was taking his disciples through the storm, not only to test them, but to show that it's worth going through storms in life, even if it means helping one person who's waiting on the other side. A principle that really stuck out to me in the show was when they were talking about Christ himself being the miracle. It isn't the actions he performed, but he himself was the miracle because he enabled us to be forgiven of our sins and return to the presence of God, and that is the miracle, and that is what should be forefront in our mind, and everything else is secondary. That really struck home with me. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. We've dismissed our studio audience and are looking forward to building upon our previous discussions about Matthew 8, Mark 2 through 4, and Luke 7 with Dan and Amber. Okay, now, as much as we've talked about within these chapters, we still haven't even touched on the parables that exist. Uh, Dan, are you okay if we start there? We can, yeah, if that's where you'd like okay, to. Okay, yeah, take it away. So I guess we, we start, th this is... This is where we begin to see the differences in uh, organization between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? So Mark introduces us to parables in chapter four. Um, the first, very first one is this parable of the sower. What's in interesting about that is Matthew won't deal with that until he gets to Matthew chapter 13. And Luke will deal with it in the next chapter, Luke 8. And then they'll start, and then all these other little parables, you'll find them maybe in Matthew 5 or, or, or elements of it here or Luke 11. And so Matthew and Luke start taking these things and moving them wherever they want to organize them. Mark just kind of starts boom, 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 boom. So that's why we're looking at it, right? Because Mark is bringing up parables for the first time. Uh, what is interesting is this very first parable, this parable of the sower, at least as far as I can tell, ends up being the first parable in all of the Gospels. So when Matthew 13 starts talking about the parables, this is the first one he addresses. When Luke starts dealing with parables, this is the first one that he addresses. So for whatever reason, this seems to have arisen as this is one of Christ's first parables. And if you're willing to invest yourself into, into the work on this, it's going to reveal new aspects of his gospel, of right. his message, of his principles. Yeah. What are some of your thoughts, Amber, as we, as we talk about, I, I love this parable. It's one of my favorites because I find so much application. And I feel like throughout my life, there are always those moments where I am the seed that has been planted on this type of soil or this type of soil. And so I find a lot of deep connection with this. From your perspective, how have you seen this progression of testimony throughout your life of the seed being planted and the importance of nourishing it along the way so that it can produce fruit? Well, I know that all of 2021, my son Max, he was determined to lose weight and to get in the best shape of his life. And we were just so impressed by his dedication 
and it was about three, four months before his accident happened, my husband and I just had this urgency that we needed to be in the temple. At the time, it was when, you know, it was really hard to get in. And for some reason, I, well, I know now why, but we were able to get in every week. We were able to get wow. in without any, any problems. And I know now that we were being prepared for my son to be prepared physically to be able to overcome this challenge and my husband and I to be spiritually prepared to be able to accept this trial and to be able to help our son get through this trial. I love that because it does go in, it falls in line so much with this. And, and there are so many different parallels we can take with this parable of, of the seed and just that preparation that it takes. Dan, what are some of your thoughts from what Amber has, has shared about lessons we learned from this parable? Well, there's some tricky parts of this parable, I think. When, when you read it at its face value, it seems very unfair for those seeds that did not end up in good right. ground, right? <laughs> That's not their fault. They got thrown there. And so it's like, uh, okay, so yeah. they don't produce good fruit, but is that really their fault? And Christ doesn't necessarily give a perfect answer here. I mean, he explains some of this a little bit later about what it's like. When he does, though, it reminds me of Lehi's dream in First Nephi chapter 8. Now, I'm not saying these two are connected. And I, I'm not saying Christ is alluding to that in 1 Nephi chapter 8, but there's a similarity in that you've got four groups of people right. and similarity in a type of function. And interestingly, they match up nicely as an analog. So if you went to 1 Nephi chapter 8, and it's really near the end of this as you get these four groups of people. If you look at verse 21, numberless concourses of people are trying to get to the tree. Right. And then what you get are four types of people engaging with this tree. The first group, many of them just get lost. Mm -hmm. In some ways, they, they, don't, they don't even get on the path. They mm -hmm. just get lost. And that's like, that's like the seed that falls on hard ground. It never even puts down root. It never even right. gets the opportunity to put down root. And that's just, that's a group. And then you've got the group that gets to the tree in verse 25, and they're ashamed of it. And then that's where you're introduced to the great and spacious building. But what do they do? They leave. So they fall away from the tree. And that's like the seed that gets in the ground. And it puts down root, mm -hmm. but it's stony. It's, it, yeah. it can't handle the affliction and the adversity. Sun comes up, that adversity kicks in, it withers and it dies. And so you've got those that are wandering, you've got those that are lost. And then you have this group that gets to the tree and stays there. And that's Lehi. And yeah. what does he do? He tries to produce more. He gets his family to come to the tree. And you've got others that are doing this. But what I find interesting is unlike... Unlike the parable where it's not your fault, it's the ground's fault. Here, no, it's yeah. you determine whether or not you're going to stay at the tree. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. You determine whether you get on that path. And that's where this kicks in. You and your family, you and your yeah. husband, you're the fruit that was, gotten, was in good ground and produced a hundredfold. But what's fascinating to the question that you asked is, what did you do to make sure you were in good ground? Right. And that's where Lehi's dream kicks in, right? What did you do to get to the tree and stay there? I don't know how you got into the temple yeah. every week, but I do know, having tried to get the youth to the temple for right. the reward, anybody, I think, could have gotten in on any given week, but you had to go by the times that the temple provided, right. not the time you, you wanted. wanted. Yeah. Right. So there is a humility there mm -hmm. to go, I will do what the temple says is the time, right. not my time. And so when Nephi describes this in 2 Nephi chapter 31, it's what do you do when you're on the straight and narrow path now? You push forward with a steadfast in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all mankind, right. feasting upon his word. And right, that's how you get to the tree. Yeah. That's how you end up in good ground. 
That's fascinating. I, I love that that comparison, and it is a great lesson on on really holding true and, and staying strong, even as we look at the apostles on the ocean. You know, yeah. life gets tough. You know, yeah. storms come in, suns get really really hot, and uh, that preparation it takes is is so important and to withstand those things. So one aspect I'd like to ask you about, Amber, now that you've had this experience, you, you have taken the opportunity to share your experience with others. Yeah, I've had one lady that her son had been injured in a sledding accident. Physically, he was okay. Mentally, he was not. And she had just so much anger and bitterness, and she quit praying. And she had so much blame towards the Lord why he would do this to her young son. And again, she came across Max's story and she saw this 18-year-old kid in a wheelchair doing willies and laughing and smiling and, and so happy that she, she started praying again. And it gave her a reason to rebuild that relationship with Heavenly Father. And I would read these messages to Max, you know, because, you know, I, I'm the one that's receiving them all. And I was so humbled. It is, there's just such gratification when you see someone's faith build. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's truly a beautiful thing to be able to witness and be somewhat a part of it. And I remember it was a couple weeks after his accident. It was our state conference and Elder Freshnick, he was at the, our area 70 mm -hmm. and he came to our home and he wanted to talk to my husband and I. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, all of this is not for nothing. And I've kept that in my mind that there is a purpose here. Mm -hmm. I know that there's a great purpose and Max has great things in store for him to teach and to be inspiring to many people. He himself is like, I don't think I'm really that inspiring. Like, has my smile really changed that much? <laughs> and I said, I don't think it's your smile. You've always had a beautiful smile, but there's, there's an countenance that's different. Your eyes, there's a sparkle in your eye. It's the spirit that is within you that is shining and it is changing people's lives. I love that. The hardest part about this is there is so much and to hone in on and when you have the story of the calming of the sea, you have these parables, you have the miracles. Uh, is there anything that has stood out to you that we have not yet covered or that we would like to revisit within these chapters uh, so far? Okay, so I love in chapter four how he is able to calm the sea and the faith that, you know, to be able to witness that, that had to have been remarkable for them to be able to see, be still, mm -hmm. calm, you know, for him to be able to control Mother Nature, just like that, that had to have been a very humbling and remarkable experience to be a part of and witness. Very yeah. much so. And in fact, their reaction to it of specifically being able to control wind and sea, this now seems to have behind it some Im implicit allusions to some Old Testament type of ideas. It existed back then too, but yeah. in the ancient world, they would understand the cosmos is not a nothing, but as a something, and mm -hmm. often depicted it as water. And so the creation story is a process of where God takes this unorganized stuff mm -hmm. and organizes it into a cosmos. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. the interesting thing is an older version of this story is we're going to take that unorganized stuff and we're going to personify it. And if you can personify it, you can describe it as a monster, right? A monster, a, a dragon, whatever it's going to be. And then you can tell the creation story as a fight between God and the monster, now, that's not how you and I think of it, right. but it is how they did. And this idea that the water represents unorganized stuff. Up to this point, Christ has healed people. Those are cool right. miracles. Mm -hmm. There's no question those are cool miracles. But this is a miracle now on a cosmic scale that has huge cosmic implications. This is an individual who controls water. This is a moment where this 
the divine of Christ peeks through, mm-hmm. right. they look at this and say, God controls waters, right? This is, this is cosmic creation stuff. Who, who is this, yeah. Yeah. right? You go to the Old Testament and they look at the, the um, splitting of the Red Sea, Isaiah and others. It gets tied back to this God as warrior creator idea, right? And so this is a place where in the New Testament, all of a sudden this comes into play. When you get Mark and Matthew talking about he rebuked it, mm-hmm. water needs rebuking, right? that doesn't make sense. But if you kind of carry with a little bit of this almost um, personified, unorganized monster type idea, all of a sudden it's being rebuked and put back into its place. Wow. Who controls yeah. the monster? <laughs> yeah. God controls, God the, controls monster, the monster. Right? Yeah. And so that, that's where you just get them afterwards going, this is not <laughs> some kid from Nazareth. This mm-hmm. is, who does this? Yeah. Nobody does this. This is, right. this is God. Yeah. And, and, and so it seems to harken back to that imagery, that language that, that reveals Christ as something a whole lot more and a whole lot bigger and a whole lot deeper than maybe they've been thinking up to this point. That's cool. Yeah. We, we talked about the importance of, of gathering things that take place in a, in a mealtime setting, you know, with Christ eating with, with sinners and publicans. And there's always this reference to breaking of bread and we see that within these chapters. Amber, you are married to a Polynesian. Yes. I grew up in a Polynesian uh, <laughs> culture. Meals are very important. If I attend a Polynesian ward, a Polynesian steak, so much of what we do is, is has to do with gathering yeah. around food. Food is a huge part of their culture. And I know that, you know, when when we have meals, whether it's a Sunday meal or if it's for a holiday, it's it's a big event. The thing that I've really always admired about the Polynesian culture is the respect that they have for their elders and to learn from them. Almost every time we have a gathering, it ends in a testimony meeting. Mm-hmm. What a great opportunity yeah. for our children to learn from our elderly and to hear them, you know, bear their testimony and their truth and their love of the Savior. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I love that about the, the Polynesian culture. Yes, food is what brings them, but you always leave spiritually strengthened because of the testimonies that have been shared. Absolutely. It's just fun. And it's so much more than sharing of, of a meal. It's right. This is what they're offering. It's, it's, it's an offering. It's, it's a yeah. gratitude. It's a, this is what I have to give. Right. You know, let's partake in this together exactly. and, and, and embrace each other in this, this unifying meal that we're right. about to share. I had a chance to go visit my family in Tonga and we had, we had a meal. And my family, growing up, there's, we had nothing. My dad came from the islands and we had very little. And so there was always just, it was just ingrained in us, whatever we had, we give. So I go back to visit uh, his sister and my cousins and uh, I remember we sat down for a, a Sunday meal. And me and my, my brothers and my cousin who were visiting, we were seated at the table. And everybody else stood back. And they watched us eat. For me, it was, it was such, it was the ultimate sign of, of respect. Mm-hmm. You are our guests. And this is what we're going to offer you. And they, if we ate every bit of food on the table, they would have been happy as can be. 
uh, to sit there and watch us do that. It was an honor for them to feed us. I was healed through witnessing the goodness, the kindness, the willingness of somebody to give all they had uh, for me. And I see that with the Savior and, and what he, his life was all about was, I'm going to give what I have, what I have to offer you, strictly out of my love for you. So yeah. that's how I see yeah. it. And I think that's yeah. profound because I think this ties back to the conversation we had earlier, which is we tend to think of healing as fixing a wound. What Christ seems to tie it to is, is I'm here to make you whole. Yeah. And that's not a wound. What you yeah. were was incomplete. Mm -hmm. And so when we think of Christ's healing, this isn't to fix a wound. It's to make whole. Yeah. In fact, the word heal and the word whole are related to the same English root. Wow. wow. <laughs> Interesting enough, it's related to the word holy. So holy carries with it the sense of to become whole or complete or finished. So when God says, be ye holy, he means become whole, become finished. You were, we're in an unfinished, incomplete state. Mm -hmm. God's in a complete finished state. Mm -hmm. Healing is how Christ makes us whole. Whether it's from wounds inflicted by ourselves, by others, or by things we didn't even know. Yeah. We're just incomplete. I'm just blown away yeah. by, by that idea of becoming whole again. So thank you, Dan. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful one. And, and it's not even just, it's not even again. We were in a certain space or a certain state. We can now become something even greater. Right. And I look at Christ and I look at his healing and I go, that's the function of his healing. It's not to fix a wound. It's not to fix this. It's to make whole. The, the commandment that he gives, be ye perfect, that Greek word teleos really carries it with the sense of be finished. It's the same idea. It's got the same, it's got the same connotation to what he says in Leviticus, be ye holy. You know, in the very beginning of after my son's accident, I was praying and begging that he'd be made whole. And I look at him today and he is whole. Mm -hmm. Through his faithfulness, he's been made whole. He doesn't need a walk to be made whole. And I think through our faithfulness, we will all be made whole. Can I ask a personal question? Yeah. The relationship you had with your husband at this accident, mm -hmm. right? Did you become closer to your husband through it? Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There is an element of incompleteness in the relationship until the trial yeah. created a new set of wholeness between you and your husband. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And our whole family. Right. Yeah. So, and to your example, there was that incompleteness that you didn't even know until you're included with a whole bunch of other people, your family, mm -hmm. and then you're like, oh, now, now I'm whole. Yeah. To this word atonement, it's at one with. It means to become reconciled. But that means you're becoming reconciled to something else other than you. Mm -hmm. And that means there's an element of the atonement that is it requires more than one person. Right. You can't be your isolated self. It's, it's communal. Yeah. Uh, that's why some of this conversation centering around this concept of eating. Yeah. I, I think I pointed out earlier, eating is just a physical function, but nobody likes eating alone. Right. Yeah. There's a part of our salvation, our, our understanding, and our wholeness that only can come through others. So I thought it'd be kind of fun as we are talking about so many wonderful things within these chapters, just to kind of go around and get some of your, what's your favorite scripture or favorite passage that you would like to read and then maybe just share a thought or two about it. Dan? Oh, I've been, we've been talking about it all the time about some of these favorite passages. Uh, in Mark chapter two, verse 12, uh, the, the whole account's great. It's when 
the, the mind comes out and Christ says, I forgive you of your sins. And everyone's like, who does he think he is that he can forgive sins? And Christ's response is like, what do you think is easier for me to say here? That your sins are forgiven you and yet he remains paralyzed right. or to me to heal him, mm-hmm. right? Listen, even if you don't accept my word, it's a whole lot easier for me to say that than to presumably. Mm-hmm. He's like, but you know what? So fine, get up and walk. <laughs> right? So what, I mean, what did you think is easier? You can, you can say, who do you think he is to forgive him his sins? He's like, what do you think is easier for me to do? Forgive him sins or to heal him? Now, the crazy part about that is, I think it's easier to heal him than it is to physically, or to, to forgive his sins. But Christ is playing on that. And, and what happens with that, verse 11 and 12, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose and took up the bed and went forth before them all insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. We've never seen anything like mm-hmm. that before. That was crazy. Yeah. And so it's back to this seeing and this, we never saw it on this fashion. We just never even imagined. And to me, that's, that's what Christ, he does things that you would never have imagined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed in Luke chapter 7, verse 6, it reads, Then Jesus went with them, and when he saw not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. I just, you know, I think, how would I react if I knew that the Lord was coming to my home? Mm-hmm. Um, I love how we have started to do our Come Follow Me in our homes and that we need to bring, make our homes temples. We need mm-hmm. to have our homes be worthy and and holy and that you shouldn't feel ashamed to be able to say if the savior were to knock on your door enter you know you would you would want to be able to have him enter enter into your home with no guilt and i feel like you know i think that's something that we should all strive for is to have Mm -hmm. our our houses be a place of worship that's great thanks amber with this entire discussion i've just I've just been so, I've learned so much. I've learned so much from your experience, Amber, and I can't thank you enough for sharing. And you're, it's, it's inspiring to see the faith that, that you and your family and your son have. And Dan, thank you so much for the insights. I just, I just want to sit and take notes the entire time. <laughs> but it really has been a pleasure to sit and learn from both of you. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it has. Thank you so much. Thanks. And for those watching at home, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion from Matthew chapter 8. Mark chapters 2 through 4, and Luke chapter 7. I encourage you to record and act upon any impressions you've received. Come Follow Up is a learning and teaching resource. For clips, insights, artwork, and additional materials, visit byutv.org slash comefollowup. Join us next week as we learn more of discipleship through the Savior's calling of His apostles. Thanks for watching. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.